Hello, this is Vida Patil. I'm the host for the podcast, The Next Hacks for Startup and Venture Success. I'm here today interviewing Paul Singh, a seasoned veteran of Silicon Valley, an investor, a serial entrepreneur, and a corporate professional. Let's see what advice he has in the COVID situation for startups and large corporations. special guest an extremely successful serial entrepreneur board advisor uh, and he's done five startups one ipo and three mergers and acquisitions is none other than our paul singh and to me he's a more like a mentor um, we have worked together at the india community center uh, conference kickoff and i have seen him at the thai event as a, like a super mentor he mentors everyone and i'm truly privileged and honored to have him here welcome paul thank you thank you very much thanks for inviting me and uh, paul uh, you know as you know i've authored the solution book and it's all about uh, problem solving in startups and no better time to solve problems than the covid situation we are in so so before you get into your thoughts about the covid situation a little brief introduction about yourself to the audience and then what do you think about the covid situation what is doing to the founders so i think uh, you know you uh, already uh, did my intro so i don't want to say any more some startups it's been a boon and for some it has been a bust mm-hmm. and for companies that it has been a bust right. and uh, you know i advise one of the companies that i would name which was dealing with events and as we know what happened to events Mm-hmm. So the first thing that the entrepreneur had to rethink is how can I reinvent my business? Right. What should I do different? Uh-huh. And to his credit, he's re-evolving the business. Uh-huh. And I think this is something that, you know, when your business goes bust, you've got to rethink. And sometimes you are in a situation where you have increased your cash burn too much. Right. And you cannot go back the old way, old way like mm-hmm. a startup does and turn around on a dime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another time, you may actually be lucky that you hadn't raised a whole lot of money and, you know, you have very s- slow burn mm-hmm. and you can actually take the ship and turn it around very, very quickly because the ship is very small. Right. Right. So, you know, the, the most typical advice I'm hearing uh, is, you know, I, th- I think there are just uh, three things I hear from uh, VCs and general advice to founders. Be patient. Funds will come. Uh, funds will be hard to come by. And second thing is plan, plan, plan. And the third thing is assess risks and work around them. So, look, planning is a good exercise that every startup needs to do. Right. But at the same time, the difference between a startup and a large company is large companies only plan, small companies execute. Hmm. So if you are just stuck on planning and taking that advice and not instead executing, mm-hmm. uh, you are actually, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. So, so okay. as, a, mm-hmm. Go ahead. as a startup, your, your role is because there are too many unknowns, right? That's the first assumption you have to know. Mm-hmm. Startup is about not a known situation. So you can plan all you want. Like who would have planned for COVID? Nobody. Not right. even the large companies, right? Yeah. So your your thought is not to worry about 
what has happened but it is like okay how can i how can i come out of it and if i have certain ideas can i experiment that very quickly to see if i am on the right path or not right mm mm-hmm. and uh, this seems to be generally a good practice for any any startup to be lean on experimenting and keep experimenting never stop experimenting right that's correct i mean you know i think the whole lean concept is real uh in fact i was listening to a podcast uh, with uh, eric reis uh, earlier mm-hmm. and uh you know he talks about that and this is some of the concepts when i teach at berkeley and northeastern to the entre- to the budding entrepreneurs mm-hmm. we try to inculcate in them that the world has changed and startups need to be created in a different way so uh, so, so what is the tempo like in the founder community you know people who are seeking seed funding or people who are building products and not yet raised money what is the tempo like uh, are they uh, are they pivoting are they repurposing to covid what's what's going on there again I, like i said it depends on your business right mm-hmm. like there are certain companies where the business was sort of okay mm-hmm. and suddenly covid made it so much better that you could have never imagined right i mean i have a i i have a entrepreneur that i talked to mm-hmm. and he mentioned to me pre covid mm-hmm. that hey uh, i'm going to start these yoga classes uh from india wow and and uh, online people will be able to take the yoga classes they'll be able to take one on one sessions and the little did i know i said i don't think this is a workable solution because people will never except because my wife is a yoga teacher and i know how important it is for the personal interactions surprisingly the number of students coming to our class has increased by a factor of 5 and they are now coming from every part of the world oh wow amazing uh, this is truly a, a story of scale and a story of i think unthinkable unthinkable things are happening right now so so the world is going virtual isn't it it's it's a virtual world yeah. now and at least uh, for now we'll I, i don't know how many of us will go back to the same old habits i mean personally for me if i don't have to commute 2 hours to go somewhere uh, most of the time i would prefer that right but anyway i, I was listening to your uh, round table in the f50 conference uh mm-hmm. today and then what, you 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 kind of programmed yourself for the new normal you kind of uh, mentioned you have accepted it i mean yeah, you have to <laughs> as an investor and uh, and a founder you uh, and you know currently you are in a uh, corporation you leading marketing efforts there at okira and you seem to have accepted that what is it like there uh, strategizing and guiding in all these roles accepting the new normal i i'm waiting for uh, things to come back to normal i've put some projects on hold here <laughs> uh so i think you should accept that the normal is never going to be the same where we started with right hmm. that is one assumption you should make for now right whether it's a 25% change or whether there is a 75% change we don't know yet because you know human beings tend to go back to the old way of doing things very quickly when things become normal right right, right. and i was listening to a podcast where they mentioned that how they have seen 
an increase in productivity with remotes that they never imagined. Exactly, yes. And they called it a Hawthorne effect, which is, you know, when things are early, these things happen and maybe they'll come back to normal. Right. And the same way when things return to somewhat normal, you're going to see people's overreaction for a while. But don't mistake it as the new reality either. Right. The new reality will be people will come somewhere in the middle after they see all these things. Paul, you were telling me about your experience uh, when you started your first company. You said it was during a recession. And I was wondering if you can share your story with founders and motivate them. Well, I, I, I think I wouldn't call that that was a big recession in the first company. But what has happened is the company I was working for uh, decided to make a move to Boston uh, because of whatever reason we won't get into. And I had uh, moved from the East Coast, so there was no reason I wanted to go back. So I took a package, and I think that was the best decision I ever made. Mm-hmm. Because after I took the package, it gave me a little time to say, okay, what should I do next? And I was thinking, and then uh, I talked to a company, and they said, oh, okay, we'd like to hire. You know what? I, I'm not sure I want to be hired right now. Mm. However, I understand what you want to get done, and I know how to do it. Right. So why don't we just do a consulting assignment while I think, what is the next thing I want to do? Right. Mm-hmm. And they said, perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And that gave me an ongoing income. Mm-hmm. And as well as the thing that I already had from the previous, uh, you know, layoff package that I took. Right. And then I was able to start my first company. It took us about 12 to 14 months to build a product. Right. And that's how the first company got started. Awesome. So you, you always had the entrepreneurial spirit. You just needed an excuse to kindle it. And looks like... Uh, they say when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. The, so the recession did it for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just me, right? If you look at many companies, many successful companies have been started in a recession. And, uh, you know, even Uber and Lyft, they were all started, Airbnb was started in the recession time. Uber, Lyft and Airbnb were started during recession? Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So what was their strategy? What was it that they did? What, did they do a lot of detailed scenario planning or they just took the plunge? Uh, you know, I don't know exactly the inside story. Right. But it is very clear to me that Uber did not start out as what it yeah, is today. Uber started as a black tech. Uh-huh. Airbnb started in somebody, you know, trying to do couch sharing. Right, right. And, uh, you know, maybe... All these people had these great visions at that time. Right. Hard to say now because everybody can claim they had a vision. Right. Uh, but I think my feeling is a lot of time, once you get into things, and if you are a good listener, yeah, and a good observer, yeah, as an entrepreneur, these are the two things that you need always. Uh, I totally a good observer and a good listener. Yes, I totally agree with you. Uh, of um, of all the podcasts I've done, of all the serial entrepreneurs I've met, they they really observe things which other people don't observe. The needs uh, of the uh, customers, you know, it's just they're listening. It looks like they're listening all the time. So, 
you yeah in fact this is one of the things i tell my students whenever i teach the class in entrepreneurship saying look you got to develop this third eye when you enter a restaurant <laughs> you know i almost kind of see the restaurant and say okay they're not going to be in business if they continue like this wow or mm-hmm. how come they're not doing so much better mm. right so you, you kind of get to see the whole culture they have built how they approach problems and what they have and then you figure out that hey there is something here or there is something wrong here right right and, you know so this is this is kind of that skill you develop over time and and you know i'm now conditioned to thinking about it i mean i enter the store and i think about the unit economics yes and say okay mm-hmm. how are they making it work right and you know so when when uh, you know i worked with you in india community center uh, we had this discussion i said uh, entrepreneurs are risk takers and you said uh, no no good entrepreneurs are risk mitigators <laughs> yeah, they are risk avoiders sorry say that again you know, mm-hmm. they are risk avoiders they are not risk yeah they you know like you said mitigators because the thing about entrepreneurship is when you do an when you become an entrepreneur the market around you is very foggy because things are not very clear right and when you get your first start right there are probably 20 risks yes. of you failing yeah and your job as an entrepreneur is to say how do i reduce each of these risks one at a time right because you can't take all the risks out yes never right yes. there are new risks that are going to come yes your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out what are the risks i can take away yeah and then a seed investor is interested in you right because a seed investor is willing to accept more risk yeah while a series a investor is willing to accept less risk and wow. a series b investor mm-hmm. is willing to accept even lesser risk right so, so and so that is what your job is as an entrepreneur to make sure that you continue to reduce your risk right as you go on yeah so you know along that line of thought uh, i i met somebody called as a chief risk officer for the first time in my life i've never met somebody like that but this was for a large corporation i'm thinking these chief risk officers come into play as you move uh, from series a to b to c that's when they start coming into play right there's like an entire department mm. dedicated to that because a company well, not really so mm-hmm. i think uh, at least in my experience the chief risk officer that we meet right because as part of okay we meet a lot of chief risk officer chief privacy officer chief data officer and they're first of all they're employed by large corporations yes because large corporations have too many risks uh, you know they have a legal risk they have a fraud risk they have a, the risk of privacy being exposed there the risk of their brand being always right. you know being exposed by some somebody doing something wrong yeah. or some systems not being in place and yeah. so on yeah so therefore th- those risk officers their role is generally to try to assess what is the risk behind different things and then recommend the things with the biggest risk that the company should focus on first right So so you know along those lines uh well, I want to ask uh, what is your advice to l- somebody in a large corporation right now let's say they're in the position of a chief 
technology officer what, what is different for covid situation for larger organizations so you know there is a cartoon that uh, i'm reminded of which uh-huh. says who uh, who caused the fastest digital transformation in your company ah. <laughs> and one side was the ceo and the cto and the cfo and all ceos right and then there was a big block for covid-19 <laughs> okay so so i i see what the advice is slowly but you know they move slowly for a good reason they are catering to a lot of people they do no, have no. to pay some no excuse i'm sorry no 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 I don't give any excuse for moving slowly. It's just that people who are moving fast are able to adopt now, right? Right. Like I was giving an example today that hey, look, Kaiser, yeah, was already on a path to digitization fast enough. Yes. That now Kaiser didn't have to do any change. I had to make a doctor's appointment. I sent an email to my uh GP and she forwards me to somebody a specialist and the specialist sends me a message saying okay go into our app and the meeting is at such and such time and i click on the app and there i have a video you know call with them oh my gosh really wow oh they did so, yeah they were prepared Right? Yes. Totally yes, that's right. Uh, Kaiser has been very impressive. Their lifestyle medicine, I'm totally blown away. I mean, the crack the wellness code we work together on at ICC. So many people from Kaiser mm-hmm. are driving it. It's amazing what they're doing. Amazing work. Right. So, so that's just an example, right? I mean, same thing. I see, you know, just like your grocery thing, right? Yeah. Looking at whole foods uh-huh. versus, you know, Lucky. Uh huh. It's a difference of night and day. How they deal with their customers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whole Foods could deliver to your house before. Yes. They could do a, you know, they could do a curbside pickup, and they could deal with you coming in the stores. Yes. Lucky only knew how to bring you into the store. Yes. And now suddenly, I'm sure all those managements are thinking back and saying, "Oh my God, I got to do something." Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, this book by Clayton Christensen, "The Innovator's Dilemma." You're saying. uh that disruptive innovation you should invest as much as you in, invest in a regular stream of income right because their disrupt, disruptive innovators are given like a small pocket they looked they looked you know they given second priority and you know uh nobody listens to them but you're saying give them equal priority or more priority no i'm saying even different i'm saying look for any company today right and i've been saying this for a while Mm-hmm. you don't you don't own your customer right somebody else is going to end up owning your customer and that is going to be amazon or walmart yeah that's true yeah uh-huh. so if you don't know your customer and you are not making an effort to know your customer yeah and not connect with them directly yeah shame on you yeah because you are going to get marginalized over time Yeah. Because you know, you look at how many B two C companies yeah. have come in as startups, right? I mean, you look at very good example is Men's Shaving Club. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Men's Shaving Club came out of nowhere, and today they know every one of their customers. Four hundred million dollar loss, some revenue like that uh-huh. in few years. Uh-huh. And there is Gillette, which mm-hmm. has been 
selling razor blades for I don't know how many years. Right. And they probably don't even know ten of their customers. Yeah. Yeah. So that just tells you. Therefore, they, you know, they can continue to do the old style advertising and brand building and all kinds of stuff and keep on investing and keep on investing. Instead, if they work towards building a relationship with their customer and engaging them directly, right, they might actually be better off destroying all their advertising budget and instead focusing on this. Yes, yes, that's very true. So this is typical design thinking, right? Your, you, you, everything is centered around the customer. Yeah, and you know, like, I think Indra Nooyi did that design yeah. thinking change inside of Pepsi. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think she's a she's a keynote speaker at Taikon uh, in Kai September. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. And she's going to talk about that, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, and I was looking at uh, some of the companies from China. And how they scaled, I was looking, at, I was listening to this talk uh, the, by the WeChat CEO and then he said uh, they don't do design thinking per se. They, uh, they have their own organizational structure which, you know, is inspired by the Toyota, uh, you know, uh, the Toyota de- des- uh, design strategy. You're optimizing for performance. So they kind of play midway. But WeChat is scaled, you know, they're doing well. But uh, do you think it's it's related to the Chinese uh, governance, uh, or is, is is do you do you think somebody should think about that here in the West also? Yeah, so I I think you know uh, you have to give credit where it is due, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Chinese government might have helped them uh, along the way, but if their customers did not like what they were doing. Right. There was nothing Chinese government could have done to make them successful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've, I've, right. fa- yeah, no, I totally agree because I worked in some uh, companies I've advised in a small capacity. In a top-down startup, it's very hard for uh, the senior management to accept uh, whatever advice we're giving. But if it's uh, you know flat structure, it's much easier. I feel. Uh, so top down, as in they have rigid; they're not going to change much because of the customer needs. So anyway, so that's a very good takeaway. So so Paul, there was one thing which you mentioned on F50, which I want to bring up right now. Uh, the F50 uh, conference. You said you you evaluated a company virtually, like there was a valuation where you there was no in person interaction. I would freak out. Like if I was to put my money on someone, <laughs> I never met them then. You know, how do you do that? How does that work? Like in COVID situation, I'm sure a lot of founders are approaching you and they want to talk to you and um, virtually, uh, how does that work? How do you uh, how do you say yes to someone or how do you approve someone? So actually, we did that pre-COVID. So it was not done in COVID. Ah, so okay. that was done virtually in pre-COVID. Huh. And the, so the reason was very simple. So... I think one of the things that in uh, F50 you heard from all the investors is that, hey, you need to group together. You need to form your community, if you might, right? Right. So I belong to a couple of communities, one of them being the Thai Angels Network. Right. And so somebody or the other takes the responsibility of doing due diligence on Mm. the company. And so you have to trust that person or, you know, and feel that, hey, what they have done.
done is really good. Right. And then if you have some doubts, it is your job to figure out if you want to raise those doubts directly with the company. And if you're convinced, great. If not, you don't have to invest, right? Yeah. So I'm going to pair one question uh, along with this uh, for you. If if a founder wants to, uh, you know, uh, approach you as as the, uh, you know, how would you approve them uh, as an investor? What are the things you look for? So I think it's it's not a uh, simple yes or no question. Right. So there are some founders that I have history directly right. or indirectly that I have either work with them or I know them in some capacity. Right. Uh, you know, I invested in one company where founder because he was on with me and he had done a previous company which was successful. So I just, you know, went along. There was another one where I worked with this VP of engineering when he wanted to start a company. I had a faith in him and I said, sure, I will put my first money in. Yeah, I and so those are two situations. And there are many situations which are somewhat unique and, you know, difficult in where you really don't know the person from before. Yeah, and I get a lot of cold outreach. I get from a lot of people cold outreach. Generally, cold outreach are very difficult for somebody to validate and do something about. And then there is a what I call a uh, uh, warm outreach. Where, where I know somebody who who already is willing to vouch for this person right. and is sending me a request to say, hey, Paul, can you look at it? I see. And when that comes, I give it a very different attention than when it is a purely cold outreach. Awesome, awesome. For, for a cold outreach, sometimes if somebody is giving me something in an area that I really am involved in personally. Yeah. And that I, you know, I've been thinking about it. I might still, you know, talk to that person. Maybe I may not invest in it instantly. Right. But I would want to know, hey, what do they know? Have they really done their work? Yeah. How much of the homework have they really done? Yeah. Can Mm -hmm. I believe them? Can I trust them? Yeah. Yeah. And that process will take a couple of weeks to months right. before that confidence is established, right? Yeah. So, uh, do you approach, do you cold call founders you're impressed with? I see you're advising a lot of startups in the B2B space and at startup strategies, but do you cold call as well if you find someone interesting? Well, that's what so far I haven't had to do that. <laughs> okay. I have not had to go out and seek business from anybody directly. Right. Uh, but, you know, as markets change, things will change. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, if I have to call call, I can. Yeah. So I have to uh, tell you this. Like when I, uh, when I started writing my book uh, with my co-author, she's based in Estonia. She, so uh, she solved a lot of problems in our startup. She's from Harvard uh, entrepreneurship and humanities and life sciences. So she uh, wrote these templates for Estonian government uh, for, you know, AI-enabled uh, founder support. They're writing, they're having chatbots for founder evaluation and founder advice. I thought, wow, uh, this is so not... They've done an amazing job. Yeah, Estonia has done an amazing job for the entrepreneurship. 
yeah i'm like when i saw that you know i was i was like totally in awe of it one end but then in silicon valley it is so people centric every every interaction is so centered around people i was like is this going to work at all you know how does a bot get to do due diligence or advise a founder how much does it know founder uh so i was wondering what your thoughts are you don't have to be a yes or no but you think you know i haven't seen those bots but i believe that you know bots and the frameworks and all these things are helpful to an extent helpful right? to an extent mm mm-hmm. there is no substitute for real experience exactly yeah to give you an example right so i was talking to an entrepreneur right who said hey you know i talked to so and so so and so so and so and they told me that i should go ahead and hire a telesales person to bring me some leads hmm so um and i think if he had a bot then bot would have answered the same thing for him. Right? Yeah, right. Right. And then I started asking him. I said, "Okay. How many customers do you have?" He said, "Oh, two." I said, "Okay. Do you know what message works with those customers?" Huh. No, they were friends of mine. Okay. <laughs> But you should know what is why did they buy your product? Yeah. And it was difficult for for him to give me the value proposition that they are buy up on. Right. And then finally, as we went further, he was able to give me the value proposition clearly. Right. But then it was like, okay, so this value proposition works for a large uh, medical institution or a small medical institution. Yeah. And it turned out that it actually works for a smaller medical institution that has a smaller budget. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so why are you actually chasing? those big guys you're never going to get to sell yeah plus they're not going to buy from you today because you are too small big big, big companies buy from big companies right until such time either you have a very unique product that solves a problem that they are suffering from yeah or they don't have an alternative yeah but a little company will always be willing to experiment with you and give you the chance and then once you have four or five or six little companies that are happy with your product now you're ready to go to the next phase right you want to mid market go to the larger markets right yeah now mm-hmm. how the heck do you teach a bot to do this i don't know <laughs> no you know the bot can leverage ai and uh, ai as in ai is spotting trends uh, here of uh, successful uh, partnerships and this bot is uh, looking at data from many companies that's what um, they say but you know i don't buy it either it's it's still a long way to go human interactions and human uh, intelligence is way superior so you know uh, with that i wanted to uh, ask you about one workshop which you conducted at thai uh, how to get your first 10 enterprise customers uh, do you remember that i think you did did it twice because it was very popular so Yeah. Uh, do you think you can share a couple of insights from that workshop? I I think you already did. You talked about big companies and uh, big, uh, you know, they they will buy uh, from big uh, other big companies. But then, other than that, did you have anything else you shared there on in in the uh, workshop which you can which you can share with us here today? 
Yeah, so I think in B2B, most of the products are what I call painkillers. Painkillers. Right? Mm. They, they're not vitamins. Right. Uh, because the business buyer is very logical, unlike a consumer buyer, uh-huh. who buys totally on emotion. While yeah. a business buyer needs both emotion and uh, and a need. Right. So, so the so the initial customer that is going to buy from you yeah. is the one whose pain point is on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. At exceeding eight. My point is, yeah. so a startup has to find customers who have that pain. First. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if their pain is so high, yeah, they're willing to, you know, give you the benefit of doubt and even start a trial with you without having a full product in place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if the pain is kind of like you know, three, four, which I call it nice to have. Yeah, nice to have. Mm-hmm. You're gonna struggle. You're gonna struggle. But the point is. For whatever product you build, yeah, and I'm assuming you did your research. Mm-hmm. So there is, there are always people for whom that is a very high thing yeah. because of a certain reason in their environment. Mm-hmm. So your challenge is to find those first ten customers who have that high thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then like we talked about, enterprise sales is a team effort. So you got to figure out who are the other people you got to make happy before your sale is going to occur. Yeah, I heard this multiple times now. Uh, uh, it's so important to know people in this space, uh, especially in sales. The relationship, uh, the the relationship sales guy, <laughs> you know, he thrives on knowing people in the ecosystem, right? Well, but I I will tell you one thing else. Though. Right. Most of the en- engineers who start startups, and you know, I'm kind of a engineer that is dangerous now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, because I haven't practiced engineering in a while. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of the common problems that engineers think is that, oh, you know, I can hire a salesperson when I'm a founder and they'll just find me the business. Yeah. And normally the, the end result is a disaster. Why do you say yeah. that? Mm-hmm. End of part one of the podcast with Paul Singh. The next episode will be aired shortly.